Well, I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 again. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. We began last week at this passage looking at the first two names that Isaiah uses to describe the child that would be born, that would bring hope, that would bring light into a very dark world. This is what he says in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, for uh, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What confidence Isaiah writes with as he examines and reflects upon uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what would happen. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask now that as we open your word that you would give us understanding of it, that you would help our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to be informed and transformed. Lord, we know that as we open your word, it is your, it is your desire that we be changed. And Lord, we're told even that your word, when it is sent forth, it will not return void, but it will accomplish everything that you have purposed it to accomplish. And so Lord, would that happen now as we open your word and hear from you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Christmas is dangerous. I'm not talking about the parking lots necessarily or the shopping centers, although those are dangerous places to be. I know yesterday as I was making my way in and out of a couple of places, uh, it was dangerous, physically dangerous for me to be in these places that I don't really want to be in, especially this time of year, uh, because of all the things that go on and all of the craziness and the people like me who are waiting to the last minute to shop. But Christmas is dangerous, and I'm, I'm talking more specifically on a theological level this morning than I am a practical level. Christmas is dangerous. The reason I say that Christmas is so dangerous theologically is that the problem that often emerges at Christmas time is that, is that many in our society and, and sometimes, oftentimes even in our churches, many people have separated in their minds the baby in the manger from the Jesus of the rest of the New Testament. And what we end up doing is we end up celebrating a baby in a manger and we don't move past the manger. Certainly it's, it's critical that we acknowledge God becoming flesh. The incarnation is very essential to our salvation, and certainly the baby in the manger is important. But for many people, they are simply put off by the grown-up Jesus. Especially, they have no problem embracing the Jesus of the manger, but the grown-up Jesus they have a big problem with. Because when you begin reading the rest of the New Testament and the rest of the ministry and work of Christ, Jesus is no longer safe or unthreatening in the manger. But now as a man and as he began his ministry and as he began to teach, as he began to 
through the miracles and as he began to expose exactly why he came and ultimately go to a cross, it's that Jesus, far now separated from the baby in the manger that many people in our day and time are offended by or feel threatened by. And so there's this separation. And, and that's why at Christmas time, you have almost this, I want to be careful, not universal sense, but almost a universal acceptance and embrace. I know that there's this debate now, and people can't say Merry Christmas anymore, Happy Holidays and all that stuff. Uh, but, but by and large, even in our culture today, you're not going to get a lot of a flack from even an unbelieving world about Christmas. It's because that most people, even non-Christians, are comfortable with the baby Jesus in a manger. As long as you don't grow him up, keep him in the manger, people are fine with that. He's safe. He's not threatening as long as he stays in the manger. And the reason I say that Christmas is dangerous is because Jesus cannot be kept in the manger. If you keep him there and you only worship a baby in a manger, then you have not seen Jesus for who he truly is. We must celebrate the manger because it is indeed God becoming flesh. But we must press beyond the manger, ultimately to a cross and an empty tomb where we celebrate the work of Christ. His work was not complete by merely, by merely being born, but rather he had to obey, be grown, and suffer, and die, and raise from the dead. You know, last week as we looked at Isaiah's prophecy concerning this child, Isaiah looks at this child, and he looks at this son that is given, and he, and he says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So even here in two verses, the baby's not even born yet, and Isaiah is pressing beyond the manger, just in these two verses, before the baby was even born. Before Christ came, became flesh, before the Son of God became flesh and was placed in the manger. Now, please don't go home and destroy your mangers, okay? It's important. I just want to help us realize that, that Jesus is so much more than this child that we often, many people often only celebrate. This child was more than just another baby. He was God in the flesh and the one through whom the world would ultimately be transformed. Today I want us to consider the next two titles that Isaiah presents us. The title of Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are our two points. Very simple this morning, right? Just keeping it simple today. I don't want to overwhelm you at Christmas, okay? Just two points, not three, not ten, two. You say, well, if you keep talking, you're going to extend it to that way, right? Two points. He is everlasting father. That is point number one. Let's look at this title, this title, this name that he has given this child. You know, when, whenever you read this passage, and I'm assuming that the, for most of you, maybe some of you in here aren't, don't have a church background, so it may not as be familiar, and, and we want to help you grow familiar with this passage. But for many of you, this is a very familiar passage. You've heard it 
recited, you, you've, you've heard it read, you've heard it taught, preached on before. And I don't know about you, but when you read this passage, it's a strange passage because the titles just really mess with me. How many of you, just be honest, confession time, I'm raising my hand. When you read this passage, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be called Everlasting Father. How many of you does that just trouble a bit? Son, Everlasting Father. Seems contradictory, doesn't it? I mean, how can you have a son who is also at the same time father? Seems really strange. Well, how can this child be both son and Father, especially in light of the Trinity, when you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can this be? How can Jesus, this is who Isaiah is talking about here, 700 years prior to his birth, be called everlasting Father when the Son is not the Father? They are distinct persons within the Trinity. How many of you have a headache already? Well, let me help you out. By God's grace. The word father here is not being used in a position or a title as father, as, as a description of, of a person or, or, the, or the, the father of the Trinity, father, son, spirit. It's not a title as much as it is being descriptive of what the son would do. Often in, in biblical days, especially in Semitic circles, the term father was a, a term that was used in reference to, to someone who was originator or an author of something, someone who was kind of over something. And so for them to be a father of something, that's the, that's the term that they would use. And so here in Isaiah's usage of this phrase, everlasting father, in a sense, what Isaiah is doing is he's saying that this son is the father of eternity. That's what he's describing. He's pointing to a description of the son's rule and reign and authority. So Isaiah's readers would have read these titles and would have understood that he's not talking about the father as a, as a distinct person, but rather uh, more of a description of what this son would do. He's, he's the originator. He's the author of eternity. He's the father of eternity, everlasting father. Hopefully that helps a bit to deal with that seemingly contradiction, at least in our minds, it's not a contradiction once you begin to understand exactly the work of the Son. Now, when you think about the concept of eternity, our minds just can't begin to even fathom eternity. Have you ever sat and tried to think about eternity? It just gets frustrating, doesn't it? Because you, you can't, you don't understand it fully. I mean, even in our usage of the term, we will use eternity in ways that have nothing to do with its true meaning. Right? You're sitting at a red light. This red light is taking an eternity. Trying to get ready for church, she is taking an eternity to get ready. Really? Man, I would be very careful in saying those kinds of things. So we will, we will use the word in ways that, that, it, that it really doesn't doesn't mean. And so when you think about the concept of eternity, you, you think of, of something that your mind really can't begin to grasp. 
Eternity is something that can truly only be ascribed to God. That's why it's hard for us to grasp the depths of what it means. For example, in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, we're told that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Eternity has its definition. Eternity is defined in the, in the person of who God is. And so what we're being told here is that the everlasting Father is, is a title of the Son. What we're being told is that Jesus is the revealer of eternity and the one who oversees eternity. Now, when you think about Christmas, you think about the incarnation. Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God has always existed. We're not Arians or Jehovah Witnesses here. We're, we're Bible-believing Christians, and we don't believe that, that in a point in time that, that Jesus, the Son of God, was created. He had always existed. So as the Son of God, he was not merely born, though he was, he was sent into the world. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, verse 5, Father, he says, glorify me in your own presence. Listen, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We know in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Son of God has always existed, but when He became flesh, He entered the world just like any other person, at least in the sense of being born as a human. When you think about eternity, while it is connected to the very existence of God, and it, while it is true that we have a hard time fathoming and understanding what eternity is and means because, because we came to existence at a particular point, realizing, though, that based upon Scripture, God has never had a beginning point, nor does He have an ending point. He has always been. While it's hard to fathom, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have bearing on our lives. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, because Jesus Christ is wonderful, he takes care of the dullness of life. As the counselor, he handles the decisions of life. The mighty God enables you to meet the demands of life. The everlasting Father provides new dimensions to your life because you are now a part of the eternal. You and I are not eternal in the sense that we have always physically existed. But you and I are very much part of the eternal because even before the world was created, you, you, friend, God knew. You were on the heart of God. You were in the mind of God. You, Though you were not physically created, though you were not living yet in this world, God knew you. You were very much part of the eternal in that sense, but became a created being at a particular point in time. And God created you now to live eternally moving forward. So, let's, 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 let's see, see, see that fleshed out in a couple of ways. 
since Jesus is the father of eternity, since he oversees eternity, he's the revealer of eternity and has authority over that, how should that impact us? Number one, we were made for eternity, just as I, just as I had said. Again, while we aren't eternal beings like God, having always existed before the universe was created, we were created for eternity. And even though we've not always physically existed, we have existed eternally in the mind of God. Ephesians 1.4 says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, that our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. God knew us before the foundations of the world were created. And so having known you from the foundation of the world and created you at a point in time, he created you to inhabit eternity. All of us, every person on the planet will live for eternity. All of us. Thomas Watson put it this way, great Puritan. He said, eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset, but eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. Friends, you were created for eternity, and you will exist for eternity, either among the righteous or among the wicked. It will either be a a day that has no sunset, or as Watson said, a day or a night that has no sunrise. And friends, Jesus makes all the difference in the world when it comes to how you will live your eternity. If you're here today and you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you continue to live your own life in your own way, doing your own thing, and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you've never placed faith in Him, Friends, you will live eternally in hell, separated from God forever, receiving the just penalty for your sins because of sin, being marked by the curse, being a rebel. But friend, if you have trusted in Christ by God's grace, if you have seen Jesus for who he is, and you realize that you are a sinner, and you realize that you have every right to be judged and condemned by a holy, righteous judge, but by God's grace, you have you've turned your back upon the ways of the world and upon the ways of the flesh, and you have placed your hope in Jesus Christ to save you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, then you will live for eternity. And it will be a day that has no sunset, as Watson put it. You will live in glory forever and ever and ever. You will live eternally one way or the other. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would urge you, friend, trust in Jesus Christ. He is the only way. This is why we have Christmas. This is why he was a baby in the manger, so that he could grow to become a man, die upon a cross for sinners like you. If you'd simply trust in him, believe in him, you would not perish but have everlasting life. He rose triumphantly from the grave defeating death, hell, and the grave once and for all so that all who had trusted him could have the same hope. We were made for eternity. But we must also, number two, live for eternity. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 7. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Listen, the rule of King Jesus is an eternal rule. He is not a king like the other kings that came before him, even like King David and Solomon and others. The good ones and the bad ones, they came and they went. They ruled and then somebody else took over. Jesus is the eternal king. He's coming, he came, he rules, and he's coming again as the reigning, ruling king of kings and lord of lords. His his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his rule and his reign is an eternal reign. It has no end. And friends, as, as part of the kingdom of God, as those who have been brought from death to life, those who have been brought from darkness to light, those who have been radically saved and made part now of the family of God and the kingdom of God, you are, you are now part of an eternal kingdom. And that means that your life should now reflect that. If we were made for eternity, it's only fitting that we live in view of eternity. Now think about that, and think about how you, not your neighbor, not your wife, not your husband, not your children, you, think about how you spend most of your time. Made for eternity, serve an eternal king in an eternal kingdom, called to live for that eternal king in an eternal kingdom, how do most of you spend your time? Many if not most, spend the majority of their time preparing for and living for the present or next week. Some of you are really good and you live for the next five, ten years, maybe 20. That's what you live for. It's what you plan for. It's what you make decisions based upon. Now, I'm not saying planning ahead like that is foolish. In fact, it's quite wise that you look ahead and you plan for life in this world. But what I am saying is that even when we plan ahead, oftentimes we don't look beyond with an eternal perspective. Just simply live for the here and now. And if we can just make it five more years, ten more years, hey, if we can survive those teenage years, We can just make it another week, another day. Friends, because Jesus is Lord over the eternal, because we were made to live for eternity, everything we do as followers of Jesus Christ ought to be done in light of eternity. Everything, every decision you make, every relationship you form, every job you work, Everything you do ought to be done in light of the eternal. Eternity must inform how we live and serve in the present. Number three, we must yearn for eternity. We're made for it, we must live for it, we must yearn for it. You know, you hear me often re, um, quote the passage in Philippians 1, 6, where Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day 
of Jesus Christ. So there's, there's a day coming when Jesus will return and he will make all things right. And when he does, we will enter what we call the eternal state. How many of you long for that? Two of you. Three. Amen. Amen. You look at Hebrews chapter 11 with me. This is great faith hall of fame. And I want you to listen to these men and women of faith being described. And this is what we're told in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they, that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what you see here in Hebrews is that these people, these men and women, all died in faith, not having received the things that they had been promised, but greeted them from afar. They were looking forward. They were longing for that day. They realized that they were mere exiles and strangers on this earth. They, they weren't building their homes and, and doing their things just because this was it. Rather, they were looking for this country that was to come. Friends, is that what you yearn for? I'm afraid much of our yearning today is limited to the here and now. Listen, what you long for, what you yearn for, is a good indication of where your heart is. Now remember, it seems like the older you get, the more you yearn for heaven. The younger you are, it's not so much, but it's not always the case, but it's often true. But even in our adult adulthood, it can be easy to lose perspective and we can find ourselves yearning and longing for the wrong things. Not that they're ungodly things, but, but for the wrong things. Jesus is the everlasting Father. He is the one true revealer of eternity. He governs the eternal because He is the eternal King with an eternal kingdom. We were made for that. We must live for that. We must yearn for that. But number two, He's also the Prince of Peace. And we talk a lot about peace today, and we know that the Bible has much to say about the Messiah, the, the peace that the Messiah would bring. And I, I just want to, to walk with you through four types of peace that the Prince of Peace brings. When you hear Isaiah talking about that his name shall be called Prince of Peace, what does that mean? What kind of peace are we talking about? Well, let's look at four that the Bible gives us. First one is this. Number one, we, we find peace with God through the Prince of Peace. You know, when you think about the word peace, for many, for most of us, it has connotations of war or conflict, doesn't it? 
want peace in the world. We don't want any more war or conflict or trouble. And the truth of the matter is, is that we are in a war. We are in a conflict. We are in a battle. And it's a conflict far greater than any earthly conflict that you can imagine. Indeed, our greatest conflict is with God. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. There's a separation between us and God. Romans 5, 8 through 10 Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's good news. For, listen, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And I don't know how often you, you, you think about this, but Before Christ, you were an enemy of God. Before a person enters a saving relationship with God, they're enemies of God. But the good news in Christ and the coming of the Son and and the, 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 the fact that God became incarnate, the good news is that God loves his enemies enough, as Kel said in his word, to get dirty and ultimately to die. A death you and I deserved so that your sins could be forgiven. That is good news that God loves his enemies. How many of your enemies do you love like that? You know, we often hear about peace treaties. September 2nd, 1945, there was a surrender ceremony that was held on board the USS Missouri as the Japanese surrendered to the U.S. and its allies. You've probably seen pictures from that day and and know about that, especially some of you history buffs. But it wasn't until some six years later, September 8th, 1951, that representatives from 52 countries met in San Francisco to actually draw up a peace treaty with Japan. 49 of the 52 countries present actually signed the treaty. We could talk about other famous peace treaties throughout the history of the world, and there have been many. And while we see the impact that such treaties have in bringing a cease to war, friends, there was a peace treaty signed some 2,000 years ago that was infinitely greater and infinitely better. And this peace treaty was not signed by ink on a wooden handcrafted desk, but rather it was signed by blood on the beams of a wooden cross. Colossians 1 Verses 19 through 20, speaking of Christ, says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ is the ultimate peacemaker because he brings reconciliation between God and his enemies, a holy God, and sinners. He also brings peace in trials. Somebody said it during our prayer time earlier this morning, but friends, we live in a chaotic world. It's one of the reasons I enjoy corporate worship so much. There's many reasons, but one of the reasons is that we just have sort of a temporary pause, don't we? Come in here, we're all messed up. Just be honest, right? 
Anybody in here not messed up? All of us are messed up. Some are more so than others, but all of us are messed up. We, we come in here, messed up people living in a messed up world, and it's just a, a temporary respite as we corporately gather together to worship God. And we don't necessarily, necessarily feel the, the brokenness and the weight and the chaos that's going on in the world in this moment. Maybe some of us do. Friends, we live in a world that is filled with chaos. Because of sin, this world is not as it should be. It is broken. It is a broken world. It is a cursed world. And and sin has damaged this world. And so as a result of living in this damaged, broken, chaotic world, all of us, all of us are going to endure and face trials. All of us. You can ignore it, you can run from it, or you can face it with the peace that Jesus Christ gives. Listen to what Jesus says. John 14, verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." take heart. I have overcome the world. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the pain and the grief and the, and the difficulty that life brings, friends, you and I can know the peace that God grants. Paul understood that when he wrote to the Philippian church. He understood that well as he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. So he says, when you're anxious, pray. Then this is what will happen if you do so with the right motives and the right spirit. And the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Because God will bring peace in the midst of trials. He doesn't remove the trials per se, but he will bring you comfort and, and peace and, and confidence in the midst of them so you can stand when the wind and the waves crash. Number three, the Prince of Peace brings us peace with others. One of the areas that sin impacts the most is, is often our relationships with other people. We live in a world where, the relation, where relational conflict is way too normal. Way too normal whether it's marital or parental or conflicts at work or conflicts in your neighborhood, Hatfield-McCoy kind of conflicts. Our culture is dominated by interpersonal conflict. And what the Lord is saying in His Word is that God can bring peace in relationships. He can bring peace with others. That is only when, when the two people are centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it's the only thing that brings us together in the midst of our differences, in the midst of our, 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 our different contexts, and, and we all come from different walks of life. Because of sin, relational conflict will be, will be normal, but it's not the way God designed it. Listen, that's why he says, for those of you who know Christ, Romans 12 Verse 18, if possible, as long as it depends on you, Christians, as long as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
because you've met the Prince of Peace. You know what true, eternal, lasting peace is. Now, because you have that peace in your heart, it's up to you. If it's up to you, as long as it's in your lap, you live at peace with others, no matter how hard it is. And then number, number four, we have peace in the world. The world is filled with hostility. 148 kids and adults killed at a Pakistani school. 185 kidnapped in Nigeria just this past week by Islamic extremists. Three persons killed in a coffee shop in Sydney, Australia. Not to mention the hundreds killed through natural disasters in Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and China just this past week. Most of you probably never heard about. Drug cartels that continue to keep people in fear in Latin American countries. Not to mention our own country. School shootings, the residue of racial tension that continues to plague our land. The advance of the secular worldview. On and on and on and on I could go. We live in a world filled with anger, with violence, with hostility. It is a broken, cursed world where we see the ugliness of the human nature manifest in many different ways. And some of us, if we're not careful, we will just, we will buy the lie that it's, it's no use. It's not going to change. It doesn't take long to get discouraged when you, when you consider any one of these things, much less all of these things. Friends, there is something that you can be encouraged by. The Prince of Peace is coming again. And this world, though it is not as it should be, one day will be forever as it should be when he makes all things new. And the new heavens and the new earth are established. The Prince of Peace is coming. There's coming a day when injustice will be no more, when terror will be eradicated, when the world will be made new and all will be right, all will be good, all will be righteous. And the Prince of Peace will rule for eternity and, and peace will hold sway forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. So the question for us Christians, you could read passages like Isaiah chapter 11 where it talks about this coming peace, the lion shall lay down with the lamb and just a picture, an image of peace, lasting peace. The way our world is now will not, always be, will not always be this way. So you have two options. You can say, well, things are bad, and it's not always going to be this way, so I'll just wait till Jesus comes back again. I'll just default to the yearning mode only. Or you can say, because there's a prince of peace, because he is the only hope this world has, as an ambassador of this Prince of Peace, as a representative of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I now, by God's grace, can seek to bring peace to the world. And I'm not talking about joining the Peace Corps, though if that's your thing, you can certainly do that. Some Christians think wrongly that 
because the world is broken and because one day Jesus is going to fix it, that we shouldn't work for peace now. Friend, that's a lie. We should and we must. If you read Jeremiah chapter 29, God's people, Israel, were put into exile in Babylon, stripped out of their home country, placed in exile in a foreign land with with pagan deities, bad place to be. Taken from their homeland, taken from everything that they had known and loved because of their sin, let's not forget that, but they were placed in exile as a consequence of their rebellion against God. But listen to what the Lord tells them in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse In verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord God, uh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream, but for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. What the Lord is saying to them is, listen, you are in a bad spot, but you must seek the good of the spot you're in. Wherever you live, in in exile or in Jerusalem, you're called to be my people, to, to multiply and to continue to have an impact and seek the welfare, the good, the peace, some translations say, of that city. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are called to be peacemakers. We are called to, to as the people who know the Prince of Peace, to make true and lasting peace in the place where we have been established. When you think about this community and you think about this state, this nation, this world, you are called to be peacemakers. And that primarily means that you are to be ambassadors of Christ seeking to bring true and lasting peace to those around you. That you are seeking to to live for the good of your community and your world because you are people who know the Prince of Peace. God is the only one who can bring peace to the world. And friends, the world should rejoice. But it doesn't. And it only can by the grace of God, but the world should rejoice that Jesus didn't stay in a manger. What the world doesn't realize is that it was good for him to become a man so that he could die on a cross, so that he could be buried and raised again from the dead and rule even now in the present. The world doesn't realize that that is good news. They see that as threatening news. They see that as divisiveness, not peace, not hope. And friends, it's the only hope that that the world has, and it's the hope that they reject. And we're called to continue to bring that truth and that peace to this world that lives in sin. Jesus is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of peace. And I said earlier that Christmas can be dangerous. It can be dangerous 
if the only Jesus you know is a baby. Christmas is dangerous if, if the only Jesus you worship is in a, in a nativity set. But it can be filled with glory, joy, and hope if the Jesus you know is the Jesus, not just of the manger, but the Jesus of the cross and the Jesus of the empty tomb and the Jesus of the eternal throne. Don't let Christmas be dangerous to you. Let it be your hope. Let it be your joy. Let it be your peace because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And submit to that. Embrace that and rejoice in that. He's not just a baby. He is the eternal God who came to save you from your sin. Serve him and worship him. Know him, trust him, walk in him. And you will have joy and you will have hope that transcends the chaos, the struggle that this world brings. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Yet another reminder, in the, midst of, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials and struggles, in the midst of darkness, Lord, just in Isaiah's day as the people lived in darkness, Lord, Isaiah pointed them to the coming of this great light, this son who would be born, this child that would be given this one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Lord, we know that that was fulfilled some 700 years later when Jesus Christ was born. And Lord, now as sinners who live in a broken and fallen world, Lord, we, we can know the hope and joy that comes in knowing Him. Lord, it may be that there are people in this room right now, that they don't know Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Maybe they're still enemies of God. Maybe, maybe they don't know true peace. They, they know little bits of happiness here and there, but they don't know true peace. Father, would you give them grace this morning? Would you, would you show them in the depths of their hearts that the hope and the joy that they can know is found in trusting Christ. That he's not merely a, a figure in a nativity set, but Lord, he's the eternal king. He's the author of eternity. He's the one who gave himself for them. God, would you move in their hearts that they might trust in him and believe in him and, and have hope. Father, there's plenty of us in this room who know you as Prince of Peace, Lord Jesus, who know you as, as the one that brings hope. Yet we may find ourselves struggling as of late. We may find ourselves trying to seek peace in other ways. Maybe we have conflict. Maybe we have struggle. Maybe, maybe we've not fulfilled our role as peacemakers in this world. Maybe, Lord, we find ourselves living for the moment and not for eternity. God, would you move our selfish hearts?
to repentance this morning and would you cause us to see Christ as our glorious hope, as our glorious prince, as the one who is worthy to serve and worship and honor all of our days. Father, would you move in our hearts? Would you cause us to respond in faith today? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.